You're listening to Beyond Modern Medicine, a podcast with a mission to educate and spread awareness on holistic practices of medicine for your mental health and physical well-being. From Chinese medicine to psychedelics, I'll be talking to some of the greatest minds in the fields of medicine, psychology, and more to explore the mind-body connection beyond modern medicine. My name is Nadia Hassan, and I'm the founder of Zaya, a digital health platform with a mission to support individuals when making well-informed decisions when choosing holistic and integrative care. Hi friends, I am so excited to bring this episode to you today because we're going to be talking about the topic of insomnia. And insomnia is something that I have personally struggled with in my life and actually kind of recently was having some troubles with. And so that's why I'm just so happy to bring this sort of content out there in the world because I find that so many people find it relevant for them. So many people are dealing with insomnia as well as other sleep disorders. And even the the statistics say 16 million people in the UK have insomnia. And in the US, it's at 30% of the population. And so in this episode, I speak to Heather Darwell-Smith, who is a London-based sleep psychotherapist currently working towards a postgraduate diploma in sleep science at the University of Oxford. Heather also holds a diploma in counseling and psychotherapy from Bath Center for Psychotherapy and Counseling. She has also completed her training in mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, and trauma assessment under Babbitt Rothschild. Alongside her work as a sleep therapist at the London Sleep Center, Heather runs a private psychotherapy practice in Oxford, and she specializes in issues such as trauma and PTSD, and particularly how they can present as challenges to our sleep. And Heather is also coming out with a book called The Science of Sleep, which we will be talking about later in this episode. And you can also pre-order it on Amazon. So let's just jump right into this episode of Overcoming Insomnia Using CBTI and Mindfulness Psychotherapy with Heather Darwell-Smith. Heather, I would love for us to just start off with you. Um, Something that I always love to ask the the guests when they first come on is how do you define being healthy? I know that's kind of a big big question, but um, I think each person has their own perspective on it. And I would love to also hear yours as well. Gosh, Um, well, thank you so much for having me and hello to everyone. It's really um, excellent seeing the people saying in the chat where they're from. And it's incredible to know that there's people here from all over the world tonight, um, tonight, this morning, wherever you are in the world. Um, so, oh, how, how, do, what makes me know that I'm healthy? Um, I would say it's, it's when I'm able to be present, when I'm able to just enjoy things for as they are, how they are without worrying about what's gone on before, what's coming up. Um, just being here, I think is, is when I know that, yeah, I'm okay. Mm. Because then I know that my nervous system is very settled um I know that there's no nothing uncomfortable in my body um it's about being here right here right now and not having to think about anything else everything's joined up everything's just working yeah yeah I completely connect with that um so in the topic of today we're talking about sleep and insomnia and I think something that I'd love to just start off with is the science of sleep and particularly 
in the brain and um, like what's happening in the brain when we go through um, the sleep wake cycle. And if you could talk about a little bit about that, that would be really a really good way to start off, I think. It's, uh, it's really interesting because there's still so much we don't know about sleep, but sleep science um, research is just exploding. You know, in the last 50 years, it's gone from a very, very niche discipline and just exploded into every aspect of research. Mm -hmm. And the activity, the, the stuff they're finding out about the brain is incredible because um, we used to think we go to sleep and then we're unconscious and nothing happens. And actually now we know that sleep for the brain is a very, very active time. And as we're falling asleep, we go through a series of brain states. So right now, while we're sitting here now, our brain is in a very active awake sort of state. It's in um, the wavelengths are running at a, at a frequency called beta. Mm -hmm. And as we start to fall down, go down into sleep, um, the brain is starting to shift. So that first stage of sleep, we're in this alpha state, which is sort of like a meditation type state where we have some awareness and we know a little bit about what's going on in the world. And then we drop down into a theta state, which is um, very, very slow, relaxed, um, but again, some ability to connect with what's going on externally. And then we drop right down into a delta state, which is where we're in deep sleep. And then all the way through the night, we cycle up and down through these different states. Um, but there's constant change. So when we come up into a state of sleep, which is called REM sleep, where we dream, that's a very active brain state. We're in a, a beta state like we are now, so it can feel very conscious. Um, so probably about 50 or 60% of our night asleep is spent in quite an alert brain state, but we're under consciousness. So it can sometimes feel a little bit like waking. But one of the things that's, I think, one of the most exciting pieces of research that came out, um, I think it was in 2012, um, the a team in, I'm trying to think where they are, I think they're in the US, found that during sleep, the brain does something specific. It washes the brain out of um, particular proteins called um, tau and beta amyloid. And it's called the glymphatic system. And what happens during sleep is that the fluid from the from the spine comes up into the brain and sort of pulses and flushes all of these proteins out and that's that happens particularly in in deep sleep and it's believed that that is the particular activity that flushes out um waste and um these these proteins some of which are said to contribute towards um, alzheimer's neuro and neurodegenerative disorders so it's a very busy brain state activity all the way through the night and you could sort of say, well, once we're offline, like our conscious state is offline, all the energy that the brain is putting into having us awake is then turned into what happens when we're asleep. Um, so the brain needs us to get out of the way because it needs to do what it needs to do to get all the body systems back up and running for our next day. But then sometimes where, where is it that insomnia starts to kick in? So at some point there's something happening in the brain that doesn't allow us to, or that wakes us up from, from being able to go through that process. And then also, um, I guess we'll talk about that a little bit later about how sleep deprivation can actually affect the body. Um, yeah. Yeah, so um, insomnia, I mean, the, the way that the brain activity changes. So 
typically um, we have, there's different types of insomnia. So we have um, difficulty getting to sleep. We'd have difficulty staying asleep or we're waking up too early. Um, and the American um, Academy of Sleep Medicine defines insomnia as persistent difficulty with sleep initia initiation, falling asleep, duration, staying asleep, consolidation, all in one place or quality, whether you're getting the different cycles of sleep. Mm -hmm. um, and whatever it is that causes us to not be able to go to sleep or not stay asleep is a very complex dynamic. Um, you have to rule out whether there are any physical or neurological conditions in place. So um, I think we've the figures are something like 30% of people who are diagnosed with insomnia actually suffer from obstructive sleep apnea. So that's something that you, you discover if you do a sleep study. And then that is, it's, if you sleep with someone, you'll tend to know because they tend to snore. Um, but someone who has apnea may not know that they have it. So they may think that their poor sleep is poor sleep. Um, but actually it's apnea, which is a treatable condition. Um, so once we get rule everything out of the way, you're then into a ter territory of, well, is it anxiety or is it insomnia? Is it that I've got too much stress in my life and my, my body's in hyper arousal, so it's very difficult for me to go to sleep? Or what is it? So it's very difficult to really pinpoint it sort of on the nail. This is what's happening, which is partly why it's very tricky to deal with. Mm, yeah. And how is it that people are able to distinguish what is um, anxiety or what is trauma and what is actually it, real insomnia? Or is that even a, is, yeah. is that even a thing? Is there a such thing as real insomnia or is there always an underlying factor behind that? Well, if we so if we take take out the words trauma or anxiety or insomnia if we think about how the body works and we think about so if we imagine ourselves like a bottle of fizzy drink and if you shake up that bottle of drink all the bubbles inside that are the stress hormones so that's cortisol and adrenaline and the more you shake it up the more pressure is in the body so if you've got a very hectic life life or there's distress going on then naturally the body is going to be shaken up there's going to be a lot of pressure so I like to think about it as that's what stress is. That's what anxiety is, that there's so much pressure in the system that when it comes to bedtime or during the night, you, you open that bottle all in one go and it's just everywhere. There's so much buildup in the system that we try then to go to sleep. So is it therefore when you open that bottle, that is insomnia? Is what the pressure is that's in the body, is that trauma or is that anxiety? The body isn't telling you, isn't, it's just experiencing the impact of the stress response. These, it's running itself round and round in circles, but as to why that's the psychological reason and story for it is something different. But biologically, it feels like this buildup that's in the system that interrupts the sleep-wake cycle. Mm. And is there a reason why this sort of, like you said, when you shake it and it kind of just all explodes, why is it that it happens in night particularly? Is there a reason for that? I think um, during the day, we're able to occupy ourselves really well. We're busy, life's going on, there's lots happening. 
Um, but at night, there's nothing else to do. So suddenly we're into, right, actually, I've got to get into bed and there's nothing else we can do. And the brain goes, oh, hello. I haven't thought about that all day. Now I'm going to think about it. Now I've got time to think about it. Um, it's almost like this landscape opens up and the body goes, right, hello. Or the brain's going, right, OK, now you're going to process all that stuff because you've blocked it away during the day. You haven't had time to look at it. So now it's like, oh, what's going on? Um, so it's, I think it's really interesting to think about it also as the, the idea of when you go to bed, it's all, some people it, describe it as a performance anxiety. It's like, right, I've got to go to bed. I've got to go to sleep. So let's see, you're lying now. It's like, right, now I've got to go to sleep. Yeah. And actually that's really um, difficult for sleep because sleep doesn't want to perform. It will do it on its own. And the more we try and do it, the more it's like, mm -mm, no, I, I, I like to think of sleep as this being. It's like, come on, come on. And the sleep will go, no, nah, I'm coming on my terms, not yours. <laughs> That's so true when you think about it. And I feel like the more pressure we put on ourselves that we need to fall asleep, it's that it just, it becomes a vicious cycle. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't, I just, it's just almost like this sort of negative loop that we kind of put ourselves in at that point but with anxiety so I'm so we're looking at this with the kind of viewpoint of anxiety and then when it comes to trauma and PTSD I think from my assumption is trauma and PTSD could really um cause or have this sort of uh onset of chronic insomnia um and then versus acute insomnia could you kind of talk about the differences between chronic and acute and maybe the, the underlying reasons as to what might lead one to having chronic insomnia versus mm. acute insomnia? So um, I think there's three, three aspects to respond to in that. So I'll, I'll look at acute and then chronic and then trauma and PTSD. Mm -hmm. So acute, acute um, insomnia is um, almost normal. It's a bad night one-off an acute response is when the stress is, stress process goes up does what it needs to do and comes down and comes through literally goes up meets the challenge comes down then comes back down to homeostasis where the body's able to relax and it's very powerful and we need it and it's not all bad because actually if we're going to get up and get up the mountain that day we need acute stress it's a positive stressor so the, the, the stress response is responding to threat, perceived or real, and therefore it puts the body on alert. And so, yeah, you may have a bad night because the body's going, right, what do I need to do? I need to check this out. Is, is it okay? So that's acute insomnia is very temporary, very natural, and a response to activation. Mm -hmm. um, and very normal. I mean, I... I every now and then have a bad night and, it, and you could call that acute insomnia. So it's a short term problem mm -hmm. which passes. It tips into chronic insomnia. I think the, um, the diagnostic criteria is, I think it's after three months when it keeps going sort of more than three days a week um, for three months, then you're into chronic insomnia is when the stress, the stressor has passed or maybe or maybe not, but the system hasn't come back all the way back down to homeostasis. It hasn't relaxed. So you're back up here in the sort of constant hum, which is chronic. So it's ongoing. 
or there may be stresses in your life. It's an ongoing scenario. So this is the difference between acute, sudden, chronic, ongoing. Mm. And ongoing insomnia, chronic insomnia, um, is something that's really tricky to deal with because we then start to have behaviors where we're trying to sort it out. So we talk about insomnia with, with um, looking at it from three Ps. So we have um, things that are, we're pre, are we predisposed for insomnia? So there are genetic aspects that more women than men have insomnia. There's lots of reasons why we might be predisposed. Then we have the precipitating factor, the trigger. We might never know what the trigger is, but you could call that the acute period. And then we have the perpetuating behaviors, the things that keep it going. And that's where we sit in chronic insomnia because it's whatever's keeping this thing going, keeps going. And quite often a lot of the behaviors that we have naturally, of course, to try and fix it, make it harder. I mean, we are we are humans. We we like to fix things, and that's why we're so successful as a race because we move forward, we fix. But actually, a lot of the this starts to create pressure, which exacerbates insomnia and keeps it going. Mm. So, what you the question about um, trauma and PTSD? Trauma, of course, puts the body in into a state of hyperarousal. Um, it can also go into hypoarousal, where it's it's a, a low arousal below. So they're two different processes, but the body is responding to threat, whether it's real or perceived, and whether it's now or before. And PTSD is an accelerated version of that. The body doesn't actually know that it's here, right here, right now. Trauma is similar, but PTSD will will pull you backwards and forwards from. That's what happened then. And the body will go straight back. And it's like literally reliving it. Very similar territories um, that you work with them in different ways. Hmm. That's very interesting. And so I'm going to go kind of going to go back um, on what you said. You spoke about the behaviors that people typically have or the behaviors that people um, somehow embody basically when they're feeling this sort of pressure when it comes to insomnia um what are some of those behaviors what does that look like um people come in and see me and they'll they'll tell me about a very elaborate um sleep routine that they have mm -hmm. and that they're very rigid they're very attached to it and they say i can't go on holiday i can't go out for the evening i've got to be home in time to perform this routine um, and it becomes very controlling. So I think some of those behaviors tend to be, um, it's a very rigid, almost it becomes quite obsessional as to um, if I do, if I get home and I, I turn the lights down at 10 and I have a bath and then I do this and then I do this and then I do this and then I'm ready to go to bed. Mm. But actually it's that, that rigidity makes it very difficult because it makes it very difficult to live with because you then start cutting away at life experiences it's like you're out for dinner with friends and you're looking at your watch going oh, I've got to go home because I've got to perform my sleep routine mm. but unfortunately when, when people get to me it's like this isn't working yeah. so we have to start to unpick and come backwards as to right okay how do we get some breathing space around this how do we flex a little bit so that you're not reliance on this very very tough scaffolding um, which ultimately can become a little bit of a trap 
Mm, yeah, yeah, definitely. And even when it comes to um, associating yourself with the bedroom, um, you know, when you enter into that sort of trap, the moment that you, like you said, you turn the lights out down, you know, it's time to go to bed. But mm. if you have something like chronic insomnia, your, your brain or you start to associate that with insomnia. And mm. um, like, what are some of the, like, what are some of the, the suggestions that you have when it comes to that? Because that mm. kind of feels like something that would be really difficult to kind of get out of. Yeah, it, it is. So, um, I mean, someone, uh, what I regularly hear is people say, um, as it starts to get, get dark, I'm watching the clock. It's like they're watching the clock. It's nearly bedtime. And the anxiety is starting to build because oh, now I've got to do it again. I've got to go to that place. I've got to do it again. Mm. Very difficult. And people do, do tell me that it's like a, a form of torture, mm. um, which is a very strong word for something that is a biological natural process that actually going to sleep is this torture mm. so what we look at doing with that um, I do there's two aspects to that one um, I will ask someone to cut the amount of time they're in bed so we'll 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 look to work with sleep restriction because what often happens is that people increase the time in bed so that they can try and get more sleep but actually it's really counterintuitive because it's giving the body all this time, it's like I've got 10 hours. Like, oh, okay, I'm just going to go here. I'm going to go there. And actually, we want to make sure that you're, this is your sleep window and we want to get you tired so that we're pushing through this. We also want to look at, and I've just noticed someone's put in the chat, um, stimu overstimulation is a problem. It's a huge problem because we, we have a very busy life and there's a lot going on. Um, we often have a lot of screen time and I mean, certainly the last year, I mean, for goodness sake, what, everything that's happened in the last year is it's like this low hum of global anxiety that's there. So mm -hmm. we get to bedtime and so you've got the anxiety of I'm going to go to bed. I'm already there's all this stuff going on. So it's all ratcheting up. So we need to think about you're not going to spend as much time in bed as you thought you were going to do. And you're only going to go to bed when you're sleepy. And you're going to get up at the same time every day. So there's a very um, structured way of working with sleep restriction where we work out how far down can we cut your sleep and never personally never go below, below six hours. The protocol is five and a half hours, but I, I think that's a very hard way to live with it. And certainly if you have a job where you're driving or doing something mechanical, you have to think carefully about sleep restriction, but we want to cut the chance of worrying. So, we're going to make you tired. We're getting a structure in place and we're saying to your body, that's when you're going to sleep. The other exercise I do with people. So if you imagine you and I are sitting here and we're talking about your sleep. So what I'll say to you is, right, you and I are going to sit here now and we're going to imagine you in your house and we're going to watch you. So tell me about what you're doing as you walk around the house. And so I'll walk through that with someone as to write, this is so, okay, you're doing that. How, how, if, as you're watching Nadia now, what do you think she needs right now? How do you think you could step in to help her? So I want to work out a really observational position for you to take so you can watch what you're doing so you can step out and watch what's going on. It's like, okay, what, what does she need now? 
so that when you're in that last couple of hours before bed you can just remind yourself of that sort of okay what happens if I just pause for a moment and just watch what am I, what what's she doing what does she need to try and slow that process down and also come out of that highly activated state Mm -hmm. so I've just noticed in the chat someone's commented about mindfulness now Mm. yes I'm a mindfulness psychotherapist and yes it's very very valuable um so coming into the now being able to work with the breath um being able to just be very present we've talked about um, trauma and PTSD. Mm. So with PTSD, sometimes a mindfulness practice can be very tricky because actually, why would I ask someone to sit in a mindful way when that could bring the activation up? So working with this observer stance helps to take you out. So you're able to step away a little bit, gives you a little bit more space between the experience of what is going on. does that all hang together? Is that, is that making sense? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And then I guess another thing that I wanted to ask you is when it comes to CBT, how is that kind of incorporated in the process? So um, <clears throat> the CBT, so CBT, CBTI is a, it's like a toolbox of um, things that we work with. And there is a structure. So if you access CBTI through a, an app or um, a book or something, there's a very structured approach. When I work directly with someone, I, I take the toolbox and then we manipulate depending on what that person needs. Because it's not a one size fits all approach. If I say to you, I would like you to do um, 20 minutes of a, a, a relaxation exercise called progressive relaxation before bed progressive muscle relaxation before bed it might be something you don't like Mm -hmm. doesn't work for you but it's it's based on a a series of factors so the first piece um is called um sleep hygiene um and i i I have a a real problem with the phrase sleep hygiene Mm -hmm. because it's like well is 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 that good clean sleep that's i mean it's like i don't like it don't like it at all Um, So it's actually a set of recommendations about lifestyle, um, stress um, reduction. So we look at diet, we look at exercise, we look at caffeine usage, substance usage, um, environmental factors, um, noise. We look at all the aspects of what could be affecting sleep. And we look at education as to what constitutes normal sleep, because sleep changes as we go through life. So it's like, well, is is there a perception challenge here? Do I think I need this much sleep when actually it could be this? Then the, another, so there's five aspects. So sleep hygiene, um, then we work with cognitive therapy to help to reframe the thoughts, to think about what my thoughts are about my sleep, um, to try and find more positive ways to regard it. Um, like I say, for some people, it's a real place of fear. So how do we reframe that? How do we change that round? Um, because, and that's very effective to take some of the frustration out of it. Mm-hmm. And through working with sleep hygiene, we can very much look at normalizing. So what is what should my sleep be? Am I, am I, do I have a huge expectation of myself that actually I'm never going to reach? When someone says to me, um, I need eight hours sleep and I'm going to sleep solidly. I'm mm, maybe you won't. That's actually very rare. Yeah. Um, sleep is different every night. So we, it, when we get to know 
what um, sleep we need, then we're able to look at the thought processes around it. I've touched on sleep restriction. Um, it's pretty hardcore to do, but it is clinically shown to be as effective as sleep medication. Um, so it is first one of the first line things that I would work with um, to cut someone's time in bed and to put a, a real structure in place because the body loves structure, likes to know where it stands. Um, then we look at relaxation strategies. Um, it's, it's really interesting, you know, there's, there's so much emphasis in the world now on sleep that actually for me, the most important thing is relaxation. We really need to focus on relaxation globally because we're all on the go all the time. So we expect a lot of our bodies. At what point are we going to really value relaxation and slowing down? So that's an aspect to what we, we what I would look at with you. What what is your relaxation? What do you do? And I would bet that many people on this call would say, I'm not sure. What do I really do to relax? So that's a big part of it. Can we work on relaxation and let sleep go over there and sort itself out a little bit more? Mm. And then we work with the, the, the fifth factor is stimulus control. And this is um, after 15, 20 minutes, if you've been lying in bed and you cannot get to sleep and you're not sleeping, you're wide awake, get out of bed. Yes. Don't put yourself through it. I mean, really don't do it to yourself. Mm. But if this is something that's happening to you, then we work through, right, what are you going to do if you get out of bed? Because if you get out of bed and you don't know what you're going to do you're going to get very frustrated very quickly there is nothing worse than being awake at 3 a.m and feeling like you're the only person in the world who's awake and everyone else in your house is asleep and you're wide awake and you don't know what to do with yourself yeah so I really recommend somewhere that you get out of bed you've set something up and there's something there that you know what you're going to do you've got some water there you've got a blanket in case it's cold you've got a book to read or a jigsaw puzzle or um one of the things that's been really incredible during lockdown is um people have been playing um building lego it's gone mad mm -hmm. um lego the the, the, the plastic bricks mm -hmm. um because it's about distraction it's about doing something else and when you do something with your hands you're distracting away from the mind mm -hmm. um relaxing letting go of trying to go back to sleep and when you feel a little bit sleepy again go back again yeah. yeah it may be you have a dodgy day the next day but actually you're going to be okay mm. you will be okay and if we can start to worry less about it it will ease yeah and i think it's so difficult in today's world with how all of us are always on our phones and on our laptops and I think that something that a lot of people who do struggle with insomnia, one of the first things that they do waking up three o'clock in the morning um, mm -hmm. is they jump on their phone and they start scrolling mm -hmm. through their emails or social media. And how does that, like, how does that blue light, for example, how does that affect us? How does that affect the brain? And um, yeah. So Rule number one, no blue light between 11 and 4 a.m. Categorically, don't do it because you are basically shining a light into your brain and going, wake up. So the way it works is, um, so forgive if this gets too technical, shout. So in our brain, we have a, a small region called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. And we have two eyes, 
which are basically holes in the skull, which light goes through. And our eyes in the retina, um, they have particular cells called ret retinal ganglion cells, and they contain a protein called melanopsin. So those proteins are really sensitive to light, particularly to blue light, very, very sensitive to blue light. So they're registering how much blue light it gets, and it sends a message to the suprachiasmatic nucleus to say, right, we're awake now. That's my job. I'm telling you we're awake. And different wavelengths of light have different effects. In the morning, we want blue light because that's what wakes us up. So that shows us how important that light is to waking. Mm -hmm. But in the evening, if we have a device, we're doing this, we are literally shining light into the brain. If we're sitting on a Kindle or we're reading, this is literally telling the brain to wake up. Mm. It's as clear as that. It's absolutely crystal clear. But again, it's clear that that's what's going on, but it also depends how much blue light you've had that day. If you're someone who works outside all day, um, screen light at night, you can have a little bit more, but you really do need to step away from the devices at, at between 11 and 4 a.m. Because the other aspect to it is its stimulation. These devices, bless their cotton socks, are designed by geniuses to keep us occupied, to keep us scrolling. Mm. And that is stimulation. And that is setting the brain up with a bunch of cortisol and adrenaline to say, right, you're awake. So it's a triple threat. You've got um, your melatonin production is being turned off, which is sleepiness hormone, because the mel that's what melanopsin does. There's cortisol going through the body, which is telling your body to wake up, turning off the mel melatonin. And you've got adrenaline, so the body's going, right, okay, I'm ready to go now. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's one of those absolutely impossible situations. Um, so if you have a long-term ongoing problem, this is something you need to take out of the mix. But I'll be really honest with you. Last year, I had a, I had a real bout of insomnia at the, um, um, hate the top of the lockdown here in the UK. And I'm very happy to admit that I would come downstairs, wrap myself in a blanket and watch Netflix. Because <laughs> the TV is far enough away from my eyes it's not ideal, there's stimulation. But the thing is, I know that I'm not gonna worry about it. And I know that it's gonna pass and it's not gonna be a persistent problem. Mm. The odd night here or there, you know what? Don't torture yourself, do something that is, is okay. But it's when it's ongoing that this becomes a real problem. If you were to get up every night and go downstairs and watch Netflix, you and I would be having quite a strict conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah and then i saw a few people uh ask in the chat what about the filters the blue light filters or even a kindle so i am a kindle person i will sometimes go on my kindle if i'm having trouble sleeping do do the blue light filters actually help um or even the glasses do those help or is there still some sort of issues that can happen there 
Um, I've really looked at the research on, on this and like everything sleep, there is no direct answer. Yes, I mean, there's been a, a really useful experiment going on with gamers, um, people who are professional gamers and they wear blue light glasses um, because invariably their sleep is wrecked because they're on, on screens all the time. Um, so they are using night filters and they are um, using the glasses, but the evidence is not clear. Um, because again, how do you measure the stimulation from the content versus the light? Um, so it really, it, I can't give a straight answer. My preference is that you just don't do it if you've got an ongoing problem, one, one, one off here and there, not a problem, mm -hmm. but ongoing, if there is a problem, this is something you would take out of the mix. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it's, I mean, it's a general, it's a general thing that's when the body needs to be asleep. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that, I mean, in between sort of 11 and four, your body needs, needs to be asleep. It doesn't want you to do anything else other than sleep. Um, the other aspect of blue light. So right now during lockdown, we've all been on, on, on Zoom. I mean, my life is, is lived on Zoom. So if I'm then like 12 hours in front of a screen, that is too much blue light, way too much. So it's quantity as well. It's how much you've got is the problem. So if you've just, you've been outside all day and you come in and you've got a couple of hours in front of a screen, that's not likely to be too much of a problem, mm -hmm. but it's the amount, it's the sheer amount of it that is a real problem. And it's this close to the eyes. That's where it's a problem. Yeah, yeah, it's so true. And I mean, you talk about all of these other um basically interventions or practices that we can use. So you talk about basically lifestyle changes and relaxation and diet and using these as kind of tools to help us with uh, insomnia. And so this is definitely more of a holistic sort of approach. And so what are your thoughts on more conventional methods um, such as you know having to take pharmaceuticals to assist with sleep? They have their place. I'm not anti, um, obviously long-term, it's not, not, not ideal. Mm -hmm. But if someone, so if someone comes into the sleep clinic um, and they haven't slept for a couple of weeks, they need a break. It's very difficult at that point to really actively work with a CBTI program if someone is that strung out. Mm -hmm. So there are times, I mean, I'm not a medic, um, but I work with medics and there are times where sleep medication absolutely has its place. Um, but ideally working without it is better because the body knows how to sleep. I mean, it, it's the absolute biological fact. If it didn't, then nature would have got rid of it by now. Yeah. Um, we, we do know that the body will sleep. So yeah, Medication when it's needed, prescribed by a professional as part of a plan, fine. Um, not anti at all, but it, it has to, it needs to be short term. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then we have a lot of different um, healthcare professionals here, and a lot of them psychotherapists, uh, counselors, social workers. And so what are some of the things that they can do to support their clients who are um, currently working through insomnia? 
I think the big thing um, that we can all work on is consistency. Um, so really setting the same wake up time every morning. So, um, so say, for example, I'm someone who, and I think I, I work quite well between seven and seven and a half hours sleep. The um, recommended amount of time for adults, recommended amount of sleep for adults is seven to nine hours. So if I'm thinking, right, okay, say I need seven hours. So for me, that means if I were being really on it, I would be getting up at seven and going to bed at midnight. But actually, um, for me, because I'm, I don't have a problem, I probably go to bed at 11 and I get up at seven. Mm -hmm. But I get up at the same time every single day of the week. So it's about consistency. Mm -hmm. Whatever it is we're doing to improve the situation has to be consistent and the same and repetition. Because mm -hmm. one of the things that often happens with insomnia, people go into panic. So they're going to try this, going to try that, going to try this, going to try that. And we strip it right down. What are the core aspects that are working for you? And we keep it simple and we do it over and over and over again, mm -hmm. because that's what retrains the brain. That's neuroplasticity. So if you imagine you've got a flock of sheep and they're walking across a hill and they will make a track on that hill because they keep doing the same thing. What we're talking about doing is putting a boulder on the, the path of those sheep and the sheep have got to get there and go, I've got to do something different. So we're making that change and the change feels uncomfortable. But very quickly, the more we do the same thing, we will get around it and it will start to work again. But it has to be consistent, routine-based. And for me, the big one is getting up at the same time every day, getting as much light as possible and moving, first thing. Mm. Those three things are the bit when people say, can I flex at all? That's the thing. No, that's the one that I want you to do consistently all the time. But it is, it's about, okay, looking at the big picture, what can you take out? What's the overwhelm? What are the factors here that you can control? What are the factors here you can't? And how do you work with those factors? Because we can't change everything. And then stripping it back and simplifying. Mm, yeah, that's really good advice. It's like really creating that routine and finding your own routine because everyone's, everyone's different. Everyone's body is different. So I think- yeah. Some people say, I think a lot of people are constantly giving advice to people. Well, you should do this. This is the routine that you should set. But I think it's really important for you to find a routine that works for you and then stick with that if you yeah. can. Because um, I know yeah. that. And it has to, yeah, it has to be personal. So when I meet a couple and I've got someone who will be someone who's a bit of a night owl and the other person isn't, it's like, right, okay, how are you two going to compromise and how are you going to find your way? Because your sleep needs are different and you need to take responsibility for your own sleep needs and prioritize your needs. Mm -hmm. um, so getting to know what you need. One of the things you can do is keep a sleep diary for a couple of weeks and you start to see, start to look at patterns. Oh, maybe I'm not getting up at the same time. Maybe I'm, I'm going to bed at different times. Maybe I had that last cup of coffee late. What are the patterns you can see and the correlations with when your sleep isn't great? When you work that piece, so when I'm working with people, I, we keep sleep diaries the whole time. Mm -hmm. What's going on? And we start to recognize, okay, that's, that's what I need. Actually, I do quite well if I have that many hours and that's what I do. But we all have different sleep needs. We are different ages. We are different gender. Mm. Um, it's so personal sleep is such a personal thing yeah yes 
Okay, so I'd love to, we, we have a few minutes left. So I want to answer all of your questions. I know there's quite a few questions and, and go ahead and keep putting those in, in the chat as well. If you do have anything, I'll try to scroll through some of these. Um, one question was, what if you don't have a stressful or a hectic life, but still can't sleep? And that's actually also something that I wanted to talk about is there's uh, more of like the biology behind that and even the hormones, how your hormones affect your sleep. And um, yeah, like what are the other factors outside of trauma, PTSD, stress that can be causing these sleep issues? So um, menopause, um, so for women, um, well, the whole way through life um, for women, you have a, a continual um, shift of estrogen and progesterone. So um, it, it's very common for women to have sleep issues if, if they've got hormonal issues with their uh, menstrual cycle or menopause, because when um, the progesterone levels drop, which tends to be two or three days before a period, progesterone is your sleepiness hormone. and that um, means that your sleep will be disrupted. And there's also pain in the mix. So it may be that you, you're not stressed, but actually you've got a chronic pain condition and there will be something going on there. So it's just, um, you're not necessarily worried about it, but if you're not comfortable, if you're physically not comfortable, um, that's going to be a problem. So the hormonal aspect is really complicated. <laughs> I'm not an endocrinologist mm -hmm. um, it is something that's very tricky to work with but definitely for women I think hormonal issues are significant mm -hmm. um, there are some um, endocrine disorders so thyroid can cause problems and I can never remember which way around it is one whether it's too high or too low that disrupts sleep um, <clears throat> there's another one there's a hormone that's the when we go to sleep, the brain switches on a hormone um, that stops the body going to the loo. So if there is a deficiency there, then you may be someone who needs to get up to go to the loo more often. Um, so there's multiple, I mean, you it's literally name a hormone and name the, name the deficiency that will then affect the sleep-wake cycle. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and also just going off of that, um, I mentioned earlier that we are also having an event on July 1st on balancing hormones uh, and stress and gut health naturally. So I think if you are having hormonal issues, I think that would be really good for you to attend that. Um, and so then another, another question that I see is, um, so someone said, some of my clients take ibuprofen to sleep and swear by it. How does it help them? Um, I'm not a medic. So I'm not quite sure of the treatment pathways. Um, the only thing I do know is that it's not great for the gut and is definitely not recommended to be taken long-term. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then another thing is, um, so actually I don't, we kind of talked about it, about this, but not really, but something that we talked about before was debunking the eight hour myth. And this is something that also somebody else was asking is how many hours of sleep is enough for an adult? Um, so if you can kind of touch back on that a little bit, mm. that'd be great. So when we talk about sleep, we talk about quality and quantity. And if, you, if you're having nine hours of poor quality sleep, so you're not getting into deep sleep, you will feel less rested than if you've had six hours of good quality sleep where you've got deep sleep. So it really is quality over quantity. Now, the recommendation for adults is seven to nine hours, 
So I suppose that's where the eight hour gets in the middle has comes from. But definitely we tend to see people are around the sort of six, um, seven, seven and a half hours. Mm -hmm. um, but people do come in and they're really worried. I'm not getting eight hours sleep. And it's like, well, don't worry about it. Um, have you ever got eight hours sleep? And they'll say, no. Well, don't worry about it then. <laughs> because that's this, this idea of this perfect amount of sleep that we need to get is just, it's, it's personal. It's really personal. Mm -hmm. um, so it's all about good quality sleep. So consistent. So being, if you're able to stay asleep, I would say for at least five to six hours, that's good sleep. Thing is, you may be slightly aware, you may sort of turn over, you may, because we come up into quite light sleep, you may be slightly aware of what's going on, but actually that's what we're looking for. We're looking for that consolidated first half of the night. Mm -hmm. That's the important bit, because quite often people will say, I go to bed at 11, I fall asleep and I'm awake between 3 and 4 a.m. But actually we're doing well because we've got that really consolidated deep sleep phase. Okay. We do need more than that, but that's what we're looking for. Okay. Okay. I think that was also someone else's question as well. And then what about uh, taking a nap? Um, does that say that we're on, we have a routine and then, you know, we're feeling tired and then we choose to take a nap. Would that disrupt the routine? Um, and our nap should naps be avoidable if we're trying to build a, a routine? Can that affect so the way, the way to think about, um, it's so difficult, isn't it? Because we're trying it, trying to cover enough of the details so what I'm saying makes sense. Is, is <laughs> I know really there's tricky. so much. <laughs> so quick fire. We have two rhythm, two things in the body. We have a circadian rhythm, which is our internal clock. And then we have um, something that's called sleep pressure. And these things work together. So our circadian rhythm determines the timing of our sleep. And our sleep pressure is what builds up to push us to go to sleep. If we nap then we are reducing our sleep pressure. So I'm, I'm very pro napping. I think it's great, especially if you're a shift worker. Um, if you've got no problems with sleep, I have no problem whatsoever with a 20, 30 minute nap between one and 4 p.m. No problem. But if you have problems getting to sleep, taking a nap could reduce your sleep pressure, which will make it harder to go to sleep that night. Mm -hmm. But for example, if you're older, it may be that you get five hours sleep at night because when we're older we get less deep sleep but actually it may work for you to have a two-hour nap in the afternoon to top up mm -hmm. um the problem with timing is you what i will say to people is don't sleep if you're going if you're just looking for a refresh don't go past half an hour because what you don't want to do is get into deep sleep because you'll feel rubbish when you come around from that but if you're really going to go for it, allow a couple of hours so that you can allow your system to have a full sleep cycle so that hopefully you don't come up out of deep sleep. Because if you wake from deep sleep, the whole thing is, is void. <laughs> it's just it's not worth it. But yeah. never nap after 4 p.m. because that will affect your sleep pressure. Mm. And caffeine. When is the last time to stop drinking caffeine? <laughs> well, again, um, if you're sensitive to caffeine and you're likely to know that you are um, because you might feel a bit jittery, then um, I would say again, three o'clock, but it's really tricky because people do build up tolerance to caffeine. 
Mm. And there was a really interesting study done, I think it's in the US a couple of years ago, where um, researchers got the same coffee from the same coffee shop um, for a week. And the amount of caffeine in that same coffee varied from 300 milligrams per cup to 500. So if you've then had two of those a day, you're, you're way, 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 you've blown your caffeine content out of the, out of the water. Mm-hmm. And then it, the, the half-life of caffeine, I mean, that takes sort of six to eight hours to go through the system. Mm-hmm. So you have to really think about quantity and timing of caffeine. I don't have a problem with caffeine in the morning. I mean, it's not the world's most abused drug for nothing. It's really effective. It's really good <laughs> at what it does. But too much caffeine will affect sleep. But again, there are some people who can drink caffeine 24 hours a day and it's never a problem. Yeah. So fascinating. I find myself being very sensitive to it. Um, So I kind of have to be one of the ones that kind of avoids it. Um, And then there's, there's also a few questions on sleep apnea. So do you have any recommendations on treatment for that? Yeah. I mean, the, the treatment, um, I, so if you were coming into our clinic, um, you would come in and you would do a sleep study where you're wired up and overnight and they test um, movement, they test breathing. Um, There's a whole range of things that get tested. It's called polysomnography. There's also a um, one you can do, I think, at home overnight as well. Treatment um, classically is a CPAP machine, which is a device that goes over the face which blows air through it op- and opens the airway because it's the airway that's closing that's causing the obstruction. So CPAP is very effective. Um, for some people, there is a surgical route um, that can be, can be helpful. For some people in our clinic, they will come in um, and they will have a jaw piece fitted and made um, because it, that can sometimes help open the jaw because apnea... Sleep apnea comes from multiple different things. Classically, if you're overweight, there is a higher risk. As we age, where there's risk because the muscles are not as tight, not as strong, so they they relax. Um, so that could be it. It could be genetic shape of the jaw, which means when you lie back, your tongue is falling back into your airway. So there's multiple reasons, um, but there's multiple treatments. But for us, we we work with the um, mouth guard and CPAP um, but also I recommend sleeping on your side um, because if you're on your side you're less likely to fall back and for it to fall backwards um, so it's also really important to avoid um, nicotine and alcohol because they, these are relaxants again which make the the process worse so mm-hmm. um, I do always recommend if you suspect apnea getting tested and getting it treated because um the difference to quality of life can be really significant if you get on top of that okay thank you so much for answering that and i know we're we're at time now um but i'm gonna ask one more question if that's okay so somebody's asking there were a few questions of this as well um what about feeling guilty about sleeping have you ever had clients where that has yeah, I mean that's that's a big one. That's that's pretty. It's a really interesting question. Um, feeling guilty for sleeping. I mean, we we could sit here for ages to unpick. Well, what's going on there? Um, biologically, sleep is essential. Absolutely essential. Um, so it's a big question to get into. Why why do you feel guilty for a biological necessity? 
yeah. what's going on in your environment that is causing that mm-hmm. yeah it's interesting but there's so many different tools and if there is one if there's one tool that you could recommend um what would that be getting up at the same time every day getting as much light and getting a boogie on so literally you get up put some music on all the lights all the windows open everything and move light movement and getting up at the same time it's completely free Mm, very good very good amazing thank you so much heather well i feel like this went so fast (laughs) yeah (laughs) it went so fast oh my gosh all right so i'm gonna send uh the links to heather's website as well as her book i think let me know if those links don't work i can try and send it out again um but yes this is her book please tell us about it (laughs) This is my book. Um, so the book and, and looking at the questions that are here in the chat, the way the book came around, it's about 200 questions that I get asked every day in my work. Um, so it's I really come from an ethos of explaining how stuff works, because if we know how stuff works, we know what to do with it. So the book is a collection of those questions. Some are very science-based, some are utterly, utterly random, like um, does the magnetic field affect where you put your bed in the room? Um, Does listening to ASMR help me improve my sleep? Mm -hmm. Um, ASMR, by the way, is is very, I find it very odd that people like to listen to people um, talking into microphones. Yeah, 20% of people in the world, it turns out, experience this this incredible, thing that it's great so it is around 200 answers to the question all the questions you would want to ask about about sleep from an evidence-based perspective and it's also very visual it's a very pictorial version of of how to look at sleep and I know that it's it's available globally so um it comes out in next third of June it comes out so yeah All right. Thank you so much, Heather. And thank you so much to everyone who's listening. If you'd like to learn more about Heather, you can visit her website at heatherdarwellsmith.com. That's H-E-A-T-H-E-R-D-A-R-W-A-L-L-S-M-I-T-H.com. Sorry, that's a long one. And if you'd like to check out her book, Uh, The title of her book is called The Science of Sleep. Stop chasing a good night's sleep and let it find you. And you can find that on Amazon. And if you'd like to learn more about what we're doing at Zaya, or if you'd like to sign up to one of our live events, um, that way you can ask some questions and connect with others, you can visit our website at zayamed.com. That's Z-A-Y-A-M-E-D.com. Also, feel free to send me an email and tell me a topic that you'd like me to cover. Or if you're a health professional and you'd like to get in contact with me about collaborating, maybe being interviewed on the show, let me know. Just send an email to nadeya at zayamed.com. All right. Thank you so much for listening and take care of yourselves out there.